our text for this morning is Psalm 20. This psalm, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a very unusual psalm. It is first a psalm of benediction. Though there are a few other benedictions throughout the psalms, this is the only psalm in which we have such a, an extended benediction. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. If you check the commentaries on this psalm, you will find that most of the commentaries speak of this psalm as a prayer. It is not. In fact, it is almost the opposite of a prayer, for in a prayer, the people of God speak to God, make their petitions and their praises to Him. But in a benediction, God speaks to His people, and His people receive the word of benediction by faith, and receiving that benediction by faith are blessed with the blessings of that benediction. It's very important to remember that when the benedictions are given in the worship services, people of God, and especially by a faithful representative of God, appointed representative of God, then it is God who speaks to us. It is God who says to us, grace, mercy, and peace be to you. God who blesses us with communion and love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and so on. And when he blesses us in that fashion, we are to hear it as from his mouth and through faith be blessed as he has said. So that's the first thing about this psalm. It's not a prayer, it's a benediction. The second thing about this psalm is that it is a benediction on one person. That's also an unusual feature, and it's a feature that we lose in our modern English translations because we do not have a distinction between, first, uh, between singular and plural of the second person pronouns. We use you for both. But Hebrew, and Greek also, by the way, have this distinction, and so does the King James language have this distinction. Thee and thou for singular, and you and your and ye for plural. And if you look at the King James, you will see that the King James says here, the Lord answer thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob defend thee, send thee help from the sanctuary, and strengthen thee from Zion's hill. So it is a blessing on a particular person, one person. Another interesting feature is that this blessing which is pronounced on one person is a blessing which is pronounced by multiple people. And so these people who pronounce this blessing go on in verse 5 to say, we will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. In fact, what we have here is a reversal of the situation that you have in the worship service where the single representative of God blesses the congregation of God. Here we have the congregation of God blessing their leader. 
In this particular instance, their leader is the king. That's the nature of this psalm. The congregation of the Lord gathered with the king in the presence of God, pronouncing benediction upon that king. It seems to be also the case that this psalm was written by David in the context of war. Some enemy had made an attack on the nation of Israel, and so the psalm speaks of defense, of strength, of setting up banners in the name of God, of knowing that the Lord saves his anointed, of those who trust in chariots and horses and so on. The context seems to be the context of battle. And what we have here then is the king coming into the presence of God to prepare for battle by appropriate sacrifices and prayers. And the people understanding his purpose in coming thus into the presence of God, blessing him and desiring before the face of God that God grant him his petitions and accept his sacrifices. Now, one of the things that is also striking about this psalm is that in a certain sense it exists, the circumstances or the setting, I should say rather, setting of the psalm exists only in the imagination of David. He speaks of the sanctuary, but there was in the reign of David no sanctuary. The tabernacle had been destroyed or forgotten, the temple was not yet built, the only thing that could be called a sanctuary was a tent that David had set up to house the Ark of the Covenant in the city of Jerusalem. And we do not read of the people worshiping there, though they may have. The point, however, is that in spite of the fact that there was no earthly sanctuary, that is, no type of the sanctuary of God, there was nevertheless the reality of that. So David here in this psalm is not only preparing a psalm which is to be used by the people of God in the future in the temple as they worship before the face of God, but is also speaking of a present spiritual reality in the lives of himself and his people and of the fact that in that gathering of the king and his people before the face of the God of God, the people of God bless him in his purposes. And finally, we notice then that David, being the author of the psalm, is also the one who is addressed in the psalm. And the one who, because he is one of the worshipers of God, participates with the people in this blessing. David very really then blessing himself along with the people, just as, for example, the minister with the people of God prays for himself in the congregational prayer. David has a dual role here in the psalm. He is the recipient of the blessing, but he is also one of those who sings this psalm in the presence of God. 
We consider the psalm under the theme, Blessing on the King in the Day of Trouble. We consider first the blessing itself, verses 1 to 5, and secondly, the confidence inspired by the blessing, verses 6 to 9. The blessing itself in verses 1 to 5. David's special work as the king of the people of God in the Old Testament was to fight against the enemies of God's people. That was the particular work which God gave him, to make war not only upon enemies within the nation of Israel, such as Saul and Absalom, but also to make war on the nations around Israel and to extend the kingdom of God to the boundaries that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His life, therefore, was a life of warfare and a life of trouble. Almost from the time of his anointing by the prophet Samuel to the very end of his life, David's life was a life of war. So that the Lord said to him near the end of his life when he was planning to build God a temple in Jerusalem, you are a man of blood. I cannot let you build your temple, my temple. In this warfare which David was called to conduct, he was a type of our Lord Jesus Christ as the king who goes before his people conquering and to conquer by the sword of the Spirit in the New Testament. And he was very unlike this in his, from his son Solomon. Solomon was the king of peace and the type of Christ as the king of peace. David's need, therefore, in his reign was different than Solomon's need in his reign. David had a particular need for the things with which the people of God bless him here in this psalm. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. But Solomon's great need was for wisdom to judge the great people of God, as he himself acknowledged at the time of his anointing. It's in that setting, the setting of David preparing for battle, the setting of David's life of warfare, that the people of God, in the presence of God, bless their king with these words, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Now let's take a closer look at those words of blessing that the people proclaim here in these lines. You have first, notice, four verses in the psalm that are part of this benediction. Verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 are eight lines, parallel lines, all of which are proclamations of blessing on the king. The people then change their focus in verse 4 and rejoice, in verse 5, excuse me, rejoice in God's salvation. We will rejoice in your salvation, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. And then at the very end of verse 5, you have one more line of blessing. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Eight lines of blessing, 
Two lines of rejoicing in the salvation of God, and then a final line of blessing. Notice also the sequence of these things. Well, first of all, notice, people of God, that those words of blessing in verses 1 to 4 can be divided themselves into two parts. In the first two verses, the congregation blesses the king's person. May the Lord answer you. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. But in verses 3 and 4, they bless his activities. The activities he has come into the presence of God to perform. May he remember your offerings, accept your sacrifice, grant you according to your heart's desire, fulfill your purpose, and finally fulfill your petitions. Notice also the sequence then of these things. Answer first, then defend, then help, then strengthen. All of these related then to the king's particular need in these times of trouble. And then in verses 3 and 4, remember your offerings, accept your sacrifice, a pair which is very closely related, and another pair in verse 4, grant you according to your heart's desire, that is what is in his heart, and fulfill your purposes, that is the counsels he has taken, and if you go on to verse 5, fulfill your petitions, those counsels and desires which he now makes known to the Lord in his prayer. Now, two other things about the psalm. And these two things, I think, emphasize for us part of that setting that we've been talking about. First of all, notice the repetition of the phrase name of God or some form of that phrase in this psalm. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you, verse 2. In verse 5, in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. And again, in verse 7, we will remember the name of the Lord our God. The name of the God of Jacob, the name of our God, the name of the Lord our God. That name is his revelation. And according to Proverbs 18, verse 10, that name is a strong power into which the righteous run and are saved. Notice, in the second place, the emphasis on the idea of salvation. This we find first in verse 5. We will rejoice in your salvation. Again in verse 6, two times. I know that the Lord saves his anointed. And then at the end of the verse, with the saving strength of his right hand. And finally in verse 9, save Lord. The salvation here desired, then, is salvation from enemies. Enemies who seek the ruin of the king and the ruin of the kingdom. Now some details about those blessings. In verses 1 to 5. First of all, the name of the God of Jacob. There is, of course, in that 
calling God the God of Jacob an allusion to the promises of God. Those promises that God made to Abraham and to Isaac and began to fulfill for his people in the multitude of sons that he gave to Jacob. There is also in that term, God of Jacob, a reference, I think, to Jacob's wrestling with God at Peniel. Jacob overcame there by faith and was, as a consequence, named by God Israel, Prince of God. Well, the king has come into the presence of God to wrestle with God through prayer in the great need, in the day of trouble which has come upon the nation. And the people bless him in the name of their father Jacob, he who also wrestled with God and overcame. Notice also the reference to the sanctuary in verse 2. Calvin points out rightly that this is a reference to the earthly sanctuary, that place where God makes his dwelling among his people, where he comes near to them so that they may draw near to him. This is the place where he and his people meet. There is a reference also to Zion, the fortress, the strong fortress, almost impossible to take, where God had set up his throne. In verse 4, excuse me, verse 3, there are references to offerings. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. Those words are references to two particular types of sacrifices, not to sacrifices in general. It's very clear with the burnt sacrifice, the term is a reference to a particular type of sacrifice. But that word offerings in, verse, in the first line is also a reference to a particular type of sacrifice. There are two types of sacrifice considered here. The first one, the one that's called offering, is a grain or food offering. And by bringing their grain and food offerings to God, the people were acknowledging that they had received it from him, that it really ultimately belonged to him, and that it was to be returned to him in service. By bringing his offerings, his grain offerings, into the temple, the king was acknowledging that he had received all that he had from God, but that having received it from God, he was bound to the service of God and must use all that God had given him in that service. So he was dedicating himself with all that he had in his position as king of Israel to the service of God and the kingdom of God. And when the people say, may he remember your offerings, the people are saying, may God recognize your righteousness in thus acknowledging him as your master. The burnt sacrifice was the sacrifice of an animal. An animal was involved in this. It was a bloody offering, therefore, and part of that bloody offering was always the idea of atonement. But there were many offerings that involved the sacrifice of an animal. It was not only the burnt offering, but the sin offering and the trespass offering and the peace offering, as we call it in the King James. Those various types of offerings all had slightly different significances. 
The burnt offering is an offering also of dedication. The animal in all of those offerings is a substitute for the person bringing the offering. But in the burnt offering, the animal is a substitute in this way that the person bringing that offering is saying, I belong to you. So the offerings, these two offerings, are really essentially the same in their idea. One says, all that I have belongs to you. The other says, I belong to you. David dedicates himself, therefore, to the Lord in the burnt offering and to the service of the Lord and of his kingdom by these burnt offerings. May he accept your burnt sacrifice. Now the people interrupt that blessing with their own rejoicing. We will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. The people turn from blessing the king to addressing God. We will rejoice in your salvation. The salvation that the king desires and that they desire on behalf of the king. They now confidently say before the face of God, we will rejoice in that salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. Those banners of which the people speak here are the banners of an army. It's not a term that's used frequently in the Old Testament, but there are two places in the Song of Solomon where we use it. Song of Solomon 6, verse 4, O my love, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. And again in verse 10, Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Those banners are expressions of confidence, of defiance to the enemy, of hope in the Lord, of rejoicing before the Lord because of his promises and his faithfulness in keeping those promises. So the people are here saying to the king and before the face of God himself, we will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of God we will set up our banners, that is, we will be joined with the king in his battle against our foes. And we will set up our banners in the host of Israel in the name of our God, proclaiming for the enemy to see that we have our confidence and hope in the God whom we are now worshiping. And the people then close their blessing with, May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. That word is the same word they use in verse 4, Fulfill all your purpose or your counsel. So the king has desires in his heart. Verse 4a. He takes counsel according to his desires, undoubtedly with his advisors, but also in his heart. And his counsels will be centered, of course, on the notion that God is the help of his people always. His counsels will be governed and guided by that fundamental truth. And as he comes then into the presence of God, 
to make his counsels known. He turns those counsels into petitions before God, praying that God will fulfill his counsels and the people bless him according to his counsels and his petitions. That isolation of that last line of blessing by the two lines of rejoicing between it and the former lines sets that line of blessing apart as the fundamental need of the king and the fundamental idea of this blessing. It's really even a repetition of the first line, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. The king comes into the presence of God, making his petitions. His fundamental need in this day of trouble is that the Lord hear and answer those petitions. And the people bless him according to his need. That brings us to the second part of the psalm. The confidence inspired by the blessing, verses 6 to 9. In verse 6, we have the confidence of the king. And in verses 7 to 9, the confidence of the people. The king expresses his confidence in these words, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Now, he says, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Did he not know it before? Of course he did. He had come into the presence of God with his offerings and his petitions because he knew it. But this people of God, his, his response to the blessing of the congregation. And he says in response to that blessing, Now I know that knowledge which I have always had has been confirmed to me by these words of God's people. Now, because the people have blessed me in the name of the God of Jacob, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He is fully confident that his petitions will be answered, that the desires of his heart will be granted, that his counsels will be fulfilled. Because of the blessing of the people of God. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. This word heaven is a reference, as Calvin again points out, to the heavenly sanctuary. Early, we have, earlier we have a reference to the earthly sanctuary where God dwells among his people and makes himself accessible to them, condescends to them so that they may draw near. Here the reference is to his heavenly sanctuary because in his heavenly sanctuary God reveals himself as infinitely exalted above all as the God who is able to help and to defend in days of trouble. The God whose strength is far above the strength of David's enemies. The God whose strength is able therefore to sustain David and the people of God in their battle. And there is reference also, notice, to the right hand of God. 
at which our Lord Jesus Christ is now seated. That's one of the ways in which we can see that this psalm speaks of Christ. In verses 7 to 9, we have the confidence of the people. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. In the day of trouble, it is the impulse of many to put their trust in the quantity and superiority of their military equipment. And the horses and chariots here spoken of in the Psalms, in this Psalm, are of course the supreme military equipment of that day, what we might call the nuclear bombs of that day. And not all nations had them. Horses and chariots were apparently expensive and difficult to obtain. And there were nations who could not summon horses and chariots for their battles. They were happy to be able to have them. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But the people of God, who had at this time no chariots and horses, do not put their trust in chariots and horses and are not overcome with fear by the horses and chariots of their enemies because they remember the name of the Lord their God. They go farther than that in verse 8. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. There may be battles which the people of God, the people of Israel, lose from an earthly point of view. Israel did not always win its battles. There are many who trust in horses and chariots, who boast of the victories they obtain by means of their great superiority of numbers and of military equipment. There are many nations, many kings and princes, many leaders in battle, many soldiers who will, having put their confidence in chariots and horses, have victory by means of them for a long time, maybe through all their lives. But the point of this psalm, people of God, is that when the crucial time comes, when the time of the judgment of God comes, whether it be here in time or whether it be at the end of time when our Lord returns again, when the crucial time comes, they will bow down and fall. However many victories they may have achieved, however great their superiority in military equipment, the time will come when they bow down and fall. The people of God, on the other hand, may be oppressed and poor and afflicted through all of this life and have very little to say or to boast about at the end of their lives as far as earthly things are concerned and as far as earthly victories are concerned. But when the crucial time comes, again, when the time of the judgment of God comes, they arise and stand upright. It is not those who trust in chariots and horses who will rise and stand upright. It is those who remember the name of the Lord their God who will rise, finally, and stand upright. Verse 9, then, 
finally turns to prayer. Save, Lord. Save, Lord. Actually, if you look at some other translations of the scriptures, you will see that some of them make this verse say, Save the king, Lord. And then moving the term king from the last line to the first line. Save the king, Lord. May he, and that would be then a reference to God, may he answer us when we call. And I think that's probably correct, though it's, it's impossible to tell for certain from the Hebrew. Save the king, Lord. May he hear us when we call. So what's happened here? The people of God, the congregation of God and the king have come into the presence of God. The king to make his sacrifices and his petitions with regard to this day of trouble. And the people to bless him in his purposes. All of this has been accomplished now. What is appropriate at the end of such an exercise? Well, the appropriate thing to do at the end of the exercise is to commit all this now into the hands of the Lord. And that's what they do. Save the king, Lord. By a very simple and straightforward petition, they say, now it's in your hands, O Lord. Save the king when he goes out to battle. And then, of course, also, may he answer us. When we call. Notice that that's a repetition, really, of verse 1. Using the same words, almost. May the Lord answer you. Now in verse 9, may he answer us. Closing the psalm, then, with the same words, almost the same words, with which they began. But now, not blessing the king, but desiring this on behalf of themselves. May the king answer us when we call. Now that is, isn't it, a very unusual psalm. And the question I think that inevitably rises in connection with that psalm is, what use are we to make of it? What kind of use can we make of such a psalm in our worship services? Is it appropriate for us, as the people of God today, to use this psalm in our worship services? Is it appropriate for us to address someone, who that someone is, is, a, is one of the questions. Is it appropriate for us, as a congregation of the Lord, to bless someone with these words in the worship service? May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Now, many of those commentators who make this a prayer say, well, this is a reminder that we as the people of God in the New Testament are to pray for our magistrates. And it's certainly true that God commands us to pray for magistrates. That's not the point in this psalm at all. This psalm is not concerned, people of God, with the kingdoms of this world and with our relationship to the magistrates who rule over us here in the United States or in any other nation of the world. This psalm is concerned with the kingdom of God, not with the kingdoms of this world. 
And this psalm blesses not just any king, but blesses the one who is anointed of the Lord to be the king of his people in the Old Testament, to be the leader of his congregation. So in a general way, then, we may say, well, this sound teaches us about the proper relationship that exists between a faithful leader of the congregation of Israel, of the congregation of the people of God today, and that congregation. It shows us the pattern. It shows us how the king ought to be dedicated to the service of God and to the service of his people, his kingdom, how the leaders of the church ought to be dedicated to that. It shows us how the people ought to respect and honor and desire the welfare of those leaders. But I think, people of God, we may also say that it is appropriate to bless our leaders in this way. As we pray for them, so we should also bless them in their righteous purposes. As they proclaim to us the word of God, as they go in and out among us, exhorting and admonishing us in the name of God, as they administer to us the mercies of Christ, we should be blessing their faithful work and rejoicing in the salvation that God gives to us through them. But the real question here is, of course, can we say this of Christ? Can we say that this blessing applies to Christ, the anointed, the real anointed of the Lord? Well, one of the glories of the worship of God's church, people of God, is described for us in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 and following. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. In the worship of the church here on earth, people of God, we gather not only with the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, but also with an innumerable company of angels and with the spirits of just men made perfect. We are all together in the worship of God on the Lord's day. Angels and men in heaven as well as men on earth. That's the glory of our worship. We come into the presence of God, but in coming into the presence of God, we come into the company of the angels and of the spirits of just men made perfect. We come into the company of God and of Jesus, the mediator of the better covenant. All these are gathered together 
in the presence of God. And Revelation 5 shows us what that worship is like. Revelation 5, verses 13 and 14. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth, notice that, and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and, are, are, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. That blessing is the blessing of the Lamb. Our blessing the Lamb. And it is, people of God, not just an acknowledgement of a blessing that is already His. It is certainly that. He has honor and glory and power, for He sits at the right hand of God. But that honor and glory and power will increase as He goes out today and tomorrow and every day until His return, conquering and to conquer. And we bless him with an increase of blessing and honor and glory and power until he comes. Having heard the word of God, let us say, Amen.